Simple Beep, episode 79, Bungie. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And on this episode, we are going to talk about a much-beloved Macintosh developer, which is Bungie, which then has had sort of a roller coaster existence since then with a grand betrayal of the Mac platform and some continued success after that. But before we do that, we have some long-reaching follow-up all the way back to, I guess, episode 17. Uh, but another little piece of Mac software update news that we got from friend of the show, Phil Dokus. In episode 17, that was our fun utilities episode, and one of our favorites was the talking moose, which would pop up on your desktop and say witty phrases. And apparently, I guess this was just in the last month, a blog post has gone up on the developer's site, rather technical in nature, but the upshot of it is that he is working on development of a modern macOS port of talking moose, or perhaps version of Talking Moose. I looked back at our show notes for that episode way back, what, like four years ago? And it noted that there was the original Talking Moose, which is a little black and white pixelated moose that was very cute. And then there was some kind of later Windows version, which was a horrifying 3D moose with a human mouth. I'm kind of hoping that Whatever is coming to the Mac is a lovely retro port and not the freaky modern Windows version. I forgot about this. This is terrifying. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a bit of a horror show. <laughs> and uh, I suppose that's as good a place as any to segue into our main topic, which also includes some horror elements, because it is the much beloved Macintosh developer Bungie. I guess we'll start off with just its founding and early years and then get into the games that it released on the Mac that were so popular. So this was essentially a two-man operation in the beginning. So there were two co-founders, Alex Seropian and Jason Jones. So Seropian started with, uh, I think, a very time-honored kind of game programming project for 1990, he released a game called Gnop, which is Pong spelled backwards because it was a Pong clone. And I think you know, that's still a venerable way to start. You know, if, if you want to program your first game just to learn a little bit about animation and collisions and the math behind it, like even today you might still create a Pong clone just because it's something that if you already have decent programming skills you can whip up in a day or so. And if you're starting from zero, you can still say, hey, like people found this to be fun at one point, and it's still kind of a fun little demo that you can put together with relatively few uh, skills or a time commitment. So that was the humble origins of Bungie. The next game that, uh, that was released, I guess perhaps the first under the official Bungie name, was called Operation Desert Storm. And interestingly, this was released in May 1991, which to me feels a little bit close to home. It's definitely close to home and inspired by real-world current for the time events. Um, but I think that that kind of slightly irreverent sense of humor um, and, and the personality that it conveys 
on behalf of Bungie, the company, is going to come up a lot in their marketing materials or manuals or even some of the actual in-game content. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of indicative of where Bungie went, for sure. Uh, But yeah, it was way close to current events. I looked up, I think, the actual Operation Desert Storm in the first war in Iraq was conducted through February of 1991. This is one of those things, uh, you know, those Twitter memes that have been going around recently where they say, reveal your age by making some statement that doesn't include years or anything. And a bunch of them are kind of dumb and cheesy, but I thought one of the more actually insightful ones recently was basically, what is the first piece of international news that you remember from your childhood? And for me, that was basically this, Operation Desert Storm in 1991. I was just like a little bit too young to remember the Berlin Wall a couple years before (laughs) that. But this is where you know it, it was. It was international news, and it was the basis for this relatively simple Mac game. It was a top-down tank combat game where the levels, I looked at some screenshots that we'll link to on Macintosh Garden. They are not like the open desert or real world cities. There are like, you're in a box and there are walls and you can hide in essentially hallways and things like that. Uh, Kind of more of a Spectre style tank combat game. Although Spectre was also released in 91, I think. And this was completely top-down sprite-based, not even the fancy uh, plain polygons of a game like Spectre. And to be clear, uh, both NOP and Operation Desert Storm were Alex Seropian uh, doing everything on his own. Right. And then the first partnered project between him and Jason Jones happened after they met in a computer science class at the University of Chicago. And they partnered to release uh, a game that I guess Jason had been primarily working on, which is called Minotaur Labyrinths of Crete. And this looks like your traditional top-down random dungeon crawler adventure game, where you have a map on most of the screen with uh, with different enemies and characters, and it's, as the name says, you know, very maze-like, labyrinth-like, and there's an inventory of items over on the other side that you can see at all times. It's not like a menu-based system where you go and check your inventory and come back to a gameplay screen. It's all laid out before you. One of the things that was innovative about this game, and I think speaks, you know, we spoke a little bit about the culture, this speaks a little bit about the innovation of Bungie, is that This looks like your regular dungeon crawler game, but it had an online multiplayer mode that required a modem for real-time multiplayer mode within this game. And basically, nobody played that because (laughs) the access to it was pretty limited. But I guess they were in college. They probably had some kind of faster internet access on a college campus, major college campus in the U.S. in 92. So this game had a lot of traditional features, but also a highly innovative feature. And I think some of the innovative features that Bungie put in its later games really will see spurred on the whole video game industry. And so with these games under their belt as officially Bungie releases, uh, they 
had they started getting on more employees who could handle specific tasks like uh, sound design, music design, art, etc. And uh, and the lore around this era of the early years of Bungie is well documented. I think because uh, this became a company that was much beloved first by the Mac crowd and then by uh, a mass audience, as we'll get to later. So there's plenty of information about Bungie if you want to go out there and look for it. Um, even on their Wikipedia page for the company itself, there's a couple of choice quotes from the co-founders uh, from this early period. And so I pulled a couple of them because they just made me laugh out loud when I was doing research for this episode. One, uh, like Ed just mentioned, they had modem support at a time when modems weren't a, a mass market thing. And uh, maybe to that point, Jason Jones recalls, I didn't really know Alex in the class, this AI class that we talked about where they met. I think he actually thought I was a dick because I had a fancy computer. <laughs> and um, one of their early employees, Martin O'Donnell, who did music composition, remembered that when they actually first moved into a dedicated space, office space, instead of working out of their dorms or apartments, um, it was a former girls' school next to a crack house, <laughs> I think in Chicago. And he said it smelled like a frat house after a really long weekend. Yes, and that's exactly the vibe that I get from these early stories and even some even some later footage of the Bungie HQ is that it had it was very much that young boys club computer, uh, you know, it was like a LAN party, but they were making their own games kind of atmosphere. Lots of Lots of cheap pizza and caffeine and late hours and culture. What is culture? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I guess as I was making notes here, I described it as non-corporate gamer dude culture, which I, th I think pretty much sums it up. Um, there's a there's this weird image on the Bungie Wikipedia page that I can't tell what the source of it is. Um it doesn't seem to be contemporaneous with their early history, but rather descriptive of it because it's listed. Uh, if you go to it, we'll put this in the show notes. If you go to it, the actual image on Wikipedia is listed as someone's quote own work, uh, which means they spent time on it. Um, and it's like, it, it's a PNG image with a slightly crumpled paper texture and this thing called seven steps to world domination written on it in Comic Sans. The first six are kick, are crossed off. They are start independent gaming software company, dominate Mac platform <laughs> because they misspelled platform, launch assault on Windows platform. They misspelled Windows too. It's like Winodos. Oh, Winodos. <laughs> it's hard to tell. It's all it's all strike through, and Comic Sans. Uh, announce killer gaming title. Acquire strongly addictive Chinese food company. Okay, maybe it wasn't pizza and caffeine. It was Chinese food and caffeine. Recover Ling Ling's head. I don't know what that means. Stage bloody coup of parent company. We'll get to that later. And then circled with what appears to be the iOS or markup tool. <laughs> Take over world. Shoot enemies into sun with giant slingshot. <laughs> you couldn't have a better summary of early Bungie culture, I don't think. Like you said, uh, some of these are crossed off because maybe this is written uh, retrospectively. Uh, yes, the main reason we're dedicating an episode of our show to Bungie is because to us, they were the the most celebrated Mac-only game development shop. 
they were putting games out for the Mac. Well, maybe Ambrosia too, but this, they were at a, like a higher level of commercial success than Ambrosia. And they were putting out games that were Mac only, or at least Mac first, maybe in theory and promises that Mac users could be proud of, especially in the era of, if you want to game, uh, you need a windows PC or, you know, one of the consoles of the era. And especially in the burgeoning first person shooter market, of the early to mid 90s, they were able to make a name for themselves, not with a port or a cross platform game, but with a Mac exclusive game. And getting back to this kind of uh, their culture, <laughs> whether or not it, it was like a serious thing or just something that happened because that's the way it was, there's a note that they also decided early on to focus on the Mac because A, the market was more open, which sounds like a serious reason. But B, that's what Jason grew up using anyway. <laughs> I saw that quote. You you took the the choice words was more open. I think the longer version of that quote was was more open and lame. <laughs> I selectively edited that. <laughs> so it was like it was almost a cynical decision, right? Like there are just there are just no good Mac games. So let's make some because but, but that is reasonable business standpoint to take, they saw a void in the market and they were able to actually successfully fill it. And Ed, like you just said, at this time in the early to mid nineties, the growing genre of games that, that everyone's excited to play is 3d first person shooters. Id software has released Wolfenstein 3d and uh, it's a revolution and Doom is on the horizon, if not out already, which, as we all know, is like, that's the gold standard of early first-person shooters. Doom was released in 93. Even to this day, it's like when a new piece of hardware comes out, even if it's you know itty-bitty and it's part of the Internet of Things or a wearable, someone will hack it so it will run the 1993 release of Doom. And so uh, Alex and Jason were looking at this and taking into account their observation that we just said about the Mac market, they decided that their next software release would be a 3D first-person view shooter. And Jason wrote the engine for, uh, you know, like drawing these three-dimensional worlds and mapping textures onto them himself. It was a one-man job. And the resulting game that came out of that 3D engine was Pathways to Darkness. And I remember hearing about this game at the time, but I certainly did not play it. And then looking back at it now, <laughs> I realize that it is a, it is a first person shooter. So that's probably if I had suggested it to my parents, they would have said no. But it's also kind of like a weird, spooky horror <laughs> first person shooter that takes place in a, a, a pyramid in the um, Yucatan Peninsula <laughs> in, in Mexico. And uh, so like there's kind of conspiracy level alien stuff going on there that you have to solve puzzles about while also shooting these aliens. This does remind me of some earlier Mac adventure games where they had this similar kind of layout. So we think of first-person shooters as being perhaps to their benefit, perhaps to their detriment, an immersive experience. Whereas this is more in the first-person adventure game tradition where you had um, kind of like that top-down game Minotaur game that I mentioned before, where you have the majority of the interface taken over by the graphic portion of the game, but then very classic Mac-like actual separate windows 
that are like a console. Uh, so instead of having uh, subtitles or things put actually across the image, they're in their own separate window, your inventory, your health, those kinds of things are in standard OS, in this case, classic Mac OS window Chrome in an array of separate windows that perhaps you could have even resized and moved around and customized to your liking. I think so. And this was this was very common for that genre of games. So Pathways into Darkness was bridging that from the point-and-click first-person adventure game to something more like a first-person shooter. And we'll link to the uh, the free Mac App Store, believe it or not, version of this. And I think it's really useful, even if you don't want to play it, go there and take a look at the screenshots because it's been preserved in this same way where now you get multiple Aqua or even Yosemite and beyond kind of window chrome. You've got four windows all arranged to form this game. And one minor note about this Mac App Store listing it is not listed in the store as being provided by Bungie. It's uh, by a company that's named Man Uptime. Um, and there's a lot about uh, Bungie's IP being kind of splintered off that we will get into more as the show goes on. So I don't know the specific provenance of this one company that's been able to update and republish Pathways to Darkness, but it's certainly not the only Bungie title that may uh, have ended up elsewhere. Well, it was interesting. I saw a Jason Jones quote about when there were different overtures towards Bungie getting acquired later on. And he said one of the things that he absolutely didn't want for the company was for their reputation as a Mac development shop to get them acquired just to make Mac ports of some other company's games. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was actually the opposite, where they were more about the creative endeavor and creating these game experiences. And then once that was complete, and they started on the Mac again because that was what they knew, (laughs) once that was complete, they were open to those games being preserved or ported or continued in other ways past their viable uh, commercial lifetime so that people could continue to play them. And they didn't really care what platform they wound up on or what other company was responsible for that. So in this case, someone has picked up the IP that is the heart of this game Pathways into Darkness, and they're fine with that, right? Bungie still exists today, and they're cool with that because if that other company hadn't gone through that work, then it would only be playable in emulation or no one would see it at all. And you might as well, they're like still proud of their back catalog. So they might as well let someone else carry the torch for that. So let's move on now to arguably the the biggest Bungie release of the classic Mac era, uh, a whole franchise of games that was initially intended to be a sequel to this Pathways into Darkness game. And you can certainly see the inspiration that, um, well, actually continues to this very day, which is, first person, you've got some aliens to kill. And of course, we're talking about Marathon. The first Marathon game, uh, like we said, is 
heavily inspired by Pathways to, into Darkness. Um, it's a first-person shooter, and you are uh, shooting aliens. But uh, it was clear in the development process that this was strong enough to be its own thing, its own IP, uh, with its own uh, interface that doesn't need to have uh, all the windows around it. And um, Pathways came out in 1993, and the very first marathon game barely made it for commercial retail release uh, for Christmas of 1994. We'll put a link to our 29th episode about software packaging in the show notes because the physical retail boxes for Marathon are very unique. They're kind of a a diamond shape with an inset cutout on the front uh, so that the Marathon logo is kind of recessed on the packaging. And I say all this because um, in the lore of Bungie, well-preserved on the internet, the team basically was pulling all-nighters leading up to Christmas to uh, like cut and shape and stuff these boxes themselves. They, they hadn't you know contracted out to a major uh, software printing and manufacturing uh, company. So they were doing all of these intricate retail boxes themselves, which uh, when you see them, or if you remember them, you'll recognize why that's a, a feat. Yeah, and I think that Bungie was often operating... I mean, every video game production is late, right? But we will see on along the timeline here that they actually released a remarkable number of titles in a fairly short span from their founding all the way through their completion of development for the Classic Mac which really coincides with the classic Mac era entirely because it was about 2001 when their changeover happened. Um, you know, they stopped developing for the classic Mac at the same point that Mac OS X became a thing. Uh, so for those of you who didn't play Marathon, which includes me uh, at the time, the basic plot is that uh, the name Marathon refers to this giant spaceship that's basically a, a colony for large amount of human life to uh, live on uh, outside of the confines of Earth. And as the game begins, this marathon ship has come under attack from a race of aliens called the Four, spelled P-F-H-O-R. And uh, it is a pretty straightforward, in terms of gameplay, first-person shooter. Um, It had some novel things for the time, like being able to use the mouse to look freely around, like up and down, as opposed to early first-person shooters where you could only pan uh, left and right. Um, What I think made Marathon really stand out in terms of um, story and its longevity in in things that people could uh, attach to and and create fan sites for and really spread the mythology of Marathon is that the game story is pretty much told to you by uh, terminal printouts. So every so often in a level in the game, you come up to a computer terminal on the wall and you hit tab, and then the gameplay essentially pauses and you read these uh, messages from the ship's AIs. And this is another theme that (laughs) will continue in Bungie games. Um, Initially, the ship AI that you interact with is named Leela, 
But then something happens to Leela, no spoilers, and a, a second different AI with a different personality named Durandal takes over and that's who you're talking to and they're relaying what's happening to humanity, what's happening to the aliens. They're giving you the objectives to do, like go here, find this, go here, turn this switch, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is a third AI that makes uh, an appearance or is, is referred to in the first marathon game and makes appearances in later games. Um, and that's that's the basic plot that's the basic gameplay is uh you're on a ship that was designed for sustaining human life it's under attack by aliens and certainly there are aliens that you have to shoot when you encounter them but the game is basically told to you by these periodic breaks in the gameplay where you just read and uh if you're interested every single terminal printout (laughs) it has been preserved um on a marathon fan site and we'll put a link in the show notes. So if you want to get a gist of the the full intact story of Marathon without actually playing it, if you just want to read the, the story of the Marathon games, you can do that. Yeah, the lore behind the game does seem rather complex. There are all these different alien races. Uh, I was reading through this, so I don't know exactly which point in the series some of them come in, but there are multiple alien races all of them have too many consonants and not enough vowels in their name. I feel that's very like mid nineties alien science fiction, right? Like we've got, we've got Klingons and whatever the alien races are in Stargate. Like they all have apostrophes and are unpronounceable because otherwise they would be insufficiently alien. (laughs) Right. But that is a major part of the story as opposed to, Something like Wolfenstein, kill Nazis, or Doom, escape from demons on Mars or whatever it is, uh, where it's like the se- the entire plot could be summarized in one sentence. Now go shoot the things where part of the experience of Marathon is having the story more progressively relayed to you. And part of this is not only the storytelling that goes on in these uh, in these computer terminal scenes, but then there's the fun side of things that are like the goofy level names that Bungie put in, where you kind of, uh, I guess, break the fourth wall a little bit and see past the alien space opera story and into uh, the Bungie corporate culture. So the main alien race is the f- four. <laughs> right. And there are a bunch of four puns, so there are levels from the first two games. Here's a selection. For your eyes only, unforgiven, and ain't got time for this. <laughs> then there are some other uh, things here. Maybe this is related to uh, Minotaur, the Labyrinths of Crete. I feel like one of the Bungie people, like, like they took Latin in high school, and they probably got a B-. minus. And they learned some mythology along the way because there are these things that are not quite Latin. So there's one called habe quid dom. Not okay. Um, those are at least words in Latin, but I'm not sure what it means. Then ingue feroque. It's something and iron, but ingue is not a Latin word. I actually have my Cassell's Latin and English dictionary here <laughs> because I'm like, nope, nope, not a word. Um, and Fatum Justum Stoltorum, something about stupid people. I don't know. And then there are the just 
silly corporate culture shining right through. Um, so there's a level called Fire, 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 Fire. <laughs> <laughs> a multiplayer level, I think, called E equals MC. What? <laughs> and if I didn't communicate that quite effectively, there are four exclamation points after what? <laughs> And a multiplayer map that does exactly what it says on the tin is called Giant Flaming Pit of Lava. And like you just said, multiplayer levels, that was another big thing with Marathon. Like their previous game, Minotaur, which was multiplayer, but maybe too ahead of its time to get a a big enough audience to make a lot of multiplayer games. Marathon brought its smooth uh, first person gameplay Again, completely custom written for the max of that time by Jason Jones and also made it operate smoothly over the network. And man, was it smooth. I was looking at some of the gameplay footage and I had forgotten kind of what those early 90s shooters looked like. And because because of the limitations of the hardware and the fact that they wanted most people to be able to play the games, the worlds are rendered in 3D. And all of the enemies are rendered as 2D sprites that always face you, Um, somewhat comically in games like Wolfenstein and somewhat slightly more realistically in Marathon and as as the Marathon series progressed. But the motion through the levels... It was like someone invented head bob for first-person shooters because they recognized that when you walk in real life, your perception or, or your view, your field of view slightly changes as you go up and down with each step, even though your brain compensates for it by fixing on a single point. Um, and so in I, I think in in Marathon, the view doesn't actually bob up and down because that would make people motion sick. The gun bobs up and down. But at such a slow rate compared to how fast you can fly through the level, that if you were considering each one of those steps, it would be like if you could take 30-foot-long steps in real life. And, you know, Doom was like this as well, um, until we got sort of into the second, third generations of first-person shooters. This was the way it was handled, but it feels so unrealistic, which, again, benefit and detriment, because I feel like... If you were worried about Marathon being a little bit like too much of a violent game, it's like, well, clearly nobody moves like that. And those are all aliens and like their blood isn't even red. So it's really just more of an action game. Um, but yeah, that movement really, um, really did kind of, uh, kind of get me. And I, I wonder what it looks like in. I, I didn't look at multiplayer footage recently, but presumably the the other players move in a similar method as the AI characters do. And they have steps that look like kind of normal stepping rate, <laughs> but presumably everyone can fly around the map at the same rate. And, and another part of this, you know, another advantage of the first-person shooter is that you don't actually have to animate the protagonist character. And so I was just thinking about this. If you had to animate what the first person character's legs looked like in Marathon, it would not make any sense. That's true. Yeah, I think uh, when you are playing multiplayer, they're they're not necessarily the aliens. There were kind of humanoid characters, and they were animated as taking human length steps. (laughs) Very quickly then, I guess. Sprinting all the time. (laughs) Some cognitive dissonance there. Uh, One feature that um, I remember seeing 
I don't know if it was in a Mac addict or, or something similar, uh, was at the end of these multiplayer games, which uh, notably were just kind of deathmatch games, like uh, what you would commonly think of multiplayer for first person shooter, uh, was a Mac OS window that was titled the post game carnage report. And it gave all your, your kill stats and um, accuracy rates, efficiency, and so on. Uh, but it, it's, it was just another example of the, the bungee renegade culture where instead of just kind of like, you know, game results, they called it the post game carnage report. And of course, marathon was a success. It performed very well. If you were just going through the story, the story was well-written and engaging, even if the, your method of consuming it was kind of out of phase with playing the game. And it had a uh, addicting multiplayer. So of course they made a sequel marathon Two, this time named Durandal after one of the AIs aboard the marathon. And this was released in November, 1995. Now this uh, is one of the first quote unquote betrayals of the Bungie company. <laughs> this uh, it came out first for Macintosh marathon. One was of course a Macintosh exclusive marathon two came out for the Macintosh and was ported to windows 95, of course, to great outcry from the Mac crowd. Yeah, but I can hardly blame them for following the money. <laughs> and it kind of goes along with what you were saying before, too. Like, they get to um, engage in the creative process themselves. And, uh, you know, like, after their games are released and they've done their part in that way, sure, let the games live as the the public wants them to live. And I think one of the things that they showed that they had built in the original by the creation of Marathon 2 and the third one that we'll get to in a minute is that the real thing that they, the real achievement was that they had built this engine from scratch that was a successful FPS engine that worked well on the Mac and then later on Windows and allowed for them to tell these stories and to continue the story and to improve the sprites. But you know, the gameplay stayed the same. And then on the multiplayer side, well, how do you improve multiplayer? You increase the diversity of the maps uh, and give players new challenges. But since these games came out so quickly, one after the other after the other, they really do feel like one large game, all built on the same foundation. Yes. Uh, another way that they improved the multiplayer for Marathon 2 was that they added the ability for you to go through the story in a co-op mode. So you could actually progress through the, the previously first person or single player story uh, with someone over the network, which I've always appreciated because I'm not very good at video games that um, rely on like fast twitch muscles and good reflexes. So when I'm playing with someone who's a lot better than me, I, I do much better. Um, and story-wise, it is a direct sequel from the first marathon and uh, as told by its name, Durandal, it involves heavily your interaction with this second AI aboard the marathon, Durandal. But uh, towards the end of the game, the third marathon AI, Tycho, comes into play. And there's even a little bit of you interacting with terminals powered by one of the alien races AIs. Um, I only remember this part of it. Uh, it was certainly helped by doing research for this episode, but I'm pretty sure that the full commercial version of Marathon 2 came on the zip drive my family bought in, I don't know, 1996, like a year or two after uh, the game was released. 
So I definitely dabbled with Marathon 2 and have uh, scattered memories of playing it. But again, I was very bad. So we had mentioned the great betrayal of taking Marathon 2 and putting it on Windows. Well, shortly after that, and going on from the point that I said about these being kind of a package story, uh, then Bungie proved that they had not, in fact, left Apple behind. They were very committed to not just the Mac, but Apple's platforms as a whole, because in, I think in 1996, they released a version of that was a bundle of Marathon 1 and 2 called Super Marathon. And this was not available for the Mac. This was one of the few decent game titles that were available for the Pippin. Hey. So yeah, it was not only a Mac title, not only a Windows title, but also a Pippin title. The third entry in the Marathon trilogy was Marathon Infinity. This was released, again, just a year later, 1996. And uh, its notable technological progress was that it came bundled with uh, oh, notably, this is only for the Mac. This didn't end up getting ported to Windows or released on Pippin. See, they're still loyal. It included separate applications that let you design your own levels, create your own levels for Marathon Infinity, and even uh, kind of sideload your own graphics for the sprites or even edit game physics and game rules. And these tools were called Forge and Anvil. I never played Marathon Infinity. I, I, you know, like looked at some gameplay and did some research for this episode. It sounds like the story is kind of interesting in that it is a different sequel to Marathon 1, kind of a parallel universe of uh, events that could have happened instead of Marathon 2 Durandal that involve uh, the same AIs and the same basic uh, world and universe, but uh, just if things had gone differently, which is a cool concept. Kind of makes sense because they're also bundling these tools that let players and fans create any kind of alternate world that they want for the game. And we, you mentioned a little bit, I think at the top of the show, Brian, you said, well, when you think of big Mac game developers, you've got Bungie on the commercial side and Ambrosia on the shareware side. And this makes me think a lot of sort of wrapping up the Marathon series as a lot like the Escape Velocity series, where they are effectively running on the same engine with some improvements. There's a text-based story that goes along with action gameplay. And then ultimately, the whole thing is thrown open to player mods where you can tell your own stories, you can bring in your own artwork, you can change the physics, you can change the weapons, you can just go wild and let basically anything happen within this tool, this engine that has been created. That's a good point. And if you're listening to the show, you missed out on these games uh, when they were originally released. Fear not. Just like Pathways into Darkness, there are official blessed... <laughs> Uh, modern versions of them that run on modern Mac machines. There's a, a kind of an engine-wide port called Alef One. Uh, so you can, that's kind of like the Mac OS application executable. And Bungie has also made the, the resources, the maps, the skins, the textures and sounds, etc., uh, available for download as well. So you can get the, the, full versions of all three original Marathon games running pretty well on your modern Mac. 
How about we move on to the next major franchise that Bungie created? And the story for how it came to be is kind of interesting. It is both following directly from the successes, both technologically and commercially, that they had with Marathon, but also going in a new direction. So the next series that they created was called Myth. The first game was called Myth the Fallen Lords. And they decided to make this game for almost the exact opposite side of the coin reason for why they made Marathon. They saw Wolfenstein that was created by id Software and said, hey, we can make a great game like that for the Mac. Well, right at the same time, they were thinking that they would make yet another first-person shooter after Marathon Infinity, and they saw some early demo footage of id Software's Quake, which was about to come out. And they said, you know, let's not make a fourth marathon game exactly like the others when Quake is about to dominate the market. Yep. And so they went in a different direction. This makes me laugh. More bungee culture. They decided to make a game that internally was called, during development, the giant bloody war game. (laughs) And the notion here was, okay, you've had these first-person shooters where you face a handful of monsters at a time, what if you had uh what if you had a hundred different uh different characters on the screen all fighting each other in two sides? And this was the genesis of myth, and it was a real-time strategy, or as I believe this is a Jason Jones quote again, he called it a tactics game, because there were real-time strategy games at this point or around this time, like I remember um original Warcraft. Um, and original StarCraft were out around this time. And those real-time strategy games and things that have descended from them to the present day, they all have this part, the part that I hated about those games, where you have to find resources, and you never know if you're getting the right types of resources in the right amounts, and then you have to build buildings and literally watch progress bars. (laughs) Yeah. So there's none of that. There's no buildings. There's no resources. You just get a set group of units. There are enemy units. There is a terrain, and you go fight each other. So that's why I called it a tactics game. Mm -hmm. All of the levels in Myth were three-dimensional. These 3D environments that gave different, you know, different advantages or disadvantages to different sides. You know, there were... uh, hills and valleys and bridges. And, you know, if there's a bridge, you can stake out the position, force the enemy to come through a small gap. Um, Or if you have archers and you put them on the high ground, they have an advantage because they can shoot farther. Uh, And that was all in full 3D. But again, another clever thing that they did was borrowing from how they got good performance for Marathon, they did all 2D sprites for the individual units, but cleverly so, not like in a first-person shooter where you can basically just have uh, a you know a single sprite set where they're always facing you, right? The enemy sees you and they come at you. Um, but here, since it's in this fully 3D world and you could rotate the camera, it would look really weird if the sprites always faced the same direction as you rotated the camera. So there were many, many more two-dimensional images that compose these sprites so that you could display them from all angles and show their attack and injury and infamous death animations. 
I think we've mentioned this on the show before you have, Brian, because it's it's just too funny. Um, and again, it fits in with this culture of this is the giant bloody war game. People are you know, all these little sprites are going to die horrible deaths. You're you're a hundred versus a hundred, and certainly not all of them are going to survive. But every time one of your units died, there would just be this little voiceover that would say Casualty. As if it were no big thing. Just just a casualty. <laughs> the same voice would, of course, announce different uh, status updates, kind of like the um, the in-game AI uh, voices that kind of replace any need for a heads-up display. Uh, but yeah, the the one just casually saying "casualty" uh, always got me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's part of the charm of this game. Um, as much as you can have charm in a giant bloody war game, <laughs> right? Anyway, Myth went on to be a huge success. So going away from the FPS genre at this point was definitely the right move for Bungie. This was a Mac game as well as a Windows game, and they sold 350,000 copies across all platforms. It was critically acclaimed at the time. It made a lot of the yearly best of lists because it really was groundbreaking. No one had done this three-dimensional and sprite-based combat before. And they pulled it off, and it looked really good. And it ran on somewhat modest hardware that allowed so many people to actually buy it and run it. It also has appeared on retrospective best ofs, like in top 20 of you know, all-time video games, all-time PC games, things like that, which really shows how innovative it was. And I'm thinking that this is probably what started to pique Microsoft's interest and other companies at this time uh, in looking to see what they could get out of Bungie. And before we dive deeper into that particular thing, uh, of course, a game like this that was so successful and Bungie being used to releasing multiple games in a franchise, there were more myths. The second myth was Myth 2 named Soul Blighter, released again just a year later. We don't need to go over what exactly was different because i think we're heading into more meaty territory in bungie's history you can look at the box art for these two games to know how similar they are <laughs> yeah, yeah uh there is one very notable thing about the release of the second myth game which is that the windows release uh the initial version of it had uh, an installer a helper application to move the files off the disk and onto your hard drive um and that installer application also had an uninstall option however <laughs> There was a bug in the uninstall portion of that helper application that could actually just uninstall everything off of your Windows <laughs> hard drive. And uh, it was found very late in the uh, release process. So there was like this hectic scramble of uh, pulling as many copies as they could and releasing them with a patched version. So that uh, no poor Windows customer who played the game and then decided they needed to reclaim the space accidentally erased their computer. Just a mild bug. <laughs> yeah, I think the quote from uh, Wikipedia said that this this process of recalling and, and shipping updates cost Bungie nearly a million dollars, which again is in 1998 money for a software company that's doing well, but is not like Microsoft. <laughs> Good thing they had sold 350,000 copies of Myth at $45 a pop right before that. <laughs> And uh, there is a third game in the Myth franchise, Myth 3, The Wolf Age, uh, even though it is 
number three in the series. It's actually a prequel to the first game. This is another pattern that's showing up here. It's like, well, we did one, and then we did a sequel, and then, I don't know, just tell another story. And and this isn't the last time we're going to see that either. Uh, and due to what we're about to discuss in the next chapter of this episode, uh, Myth 3 was not actually developed, released, produced, etc. by Bungie in any way. It was developed by a company called Mumbo Jumbo and produced slash released by a company called Take Two uh, due to how all of Bungie's intellectual property was distributed following its acquisition by Microsoft. Right in the middle of developing one of the most popular video game franchises of all time, which at that point wasn't even a franchise, it was just the game itself, And that game is, of course, Halo. Just like the very first marathon was initially intended to be a kind of alien sci-fi skin on Pathways into Darkness, Halo was originally intended to be a more sci-fi skin on the Myth engine. Uh, But clearly, as they progressed on the story and the assets and the gameplay itself, it was clear that it was going to go back to being uh, primarily a shooter And I think it varied between third person and first person before settling on first person. Um, And it it just had to become its own thing. With some third person modes, though, I mean, that was part of the innovation of Halo was that you were primarily in first person mode, but then there were these vehicles. And whenever you jumped on a vehicle, you zoomed out to third person mode. And it was a very seamless transition, which was a very cool feature of the gameplay. As for the connection to myth, which I didn't know about before we started doing research, I can see that as well in the kind of outdoor terrain that especially showed up in the multiplayer maps for Halo. That can accommodate many units engaging in warfare at the same time. Right, and how they were set on the the Halo um, with this with this implication that the terrain went on at least in uh, in one dimension to infinity. So the world was introduced to Halo uh, at a MacWorld keynote because still at this time Bungie was first and foremost a Mac shop. This was MacWorld New York, nineteen ninety nine, and uh, this was uh, Steve Jobs is back at the company. This was actually during the uh, interim CEO portion. So like right in that small window. And uh, in a portion of the keynote that was talking about OpenGL and graphics performance on the Mac, he segued into um, the what would become the Halo introduction with this line that I know for me is like burned into my memory because, well, I'll play it for you now. We are starting to see some great games come back to the map, but this is one of the coolest I've ever seen. From the moment that Steve Jobs himself gave his blessing that Halo was going to be one of the coolest games he had ever seen, I knew that I was going to have to get it and I was going to have to play it. And it was going to it was going to be possible, right? Because it was it was going to be a Mac exclusive. That's not how it came to pass. Oh, no. No, it didn't. Sorry sorry to retroactively break your heart, Brian. (laughs) I know. Um, before we get into the, the acquisition itself, uh, another excellent internal Bungie corporate culture name. Uh, <laughs> it was not always called Halo from the start. The original working title for this game was Monkey Nuts. 
<laughs> and then it got a second internal code name because Jason Jones was trying to tell his mother what he was working on. And he decided he couldn't tell her he was working on monkey nuts. So he decided to re- retitle it Blam. <laughs> but finally, they settled on Halo. I think I read that they they hired an outside marketing firm to pitch some, you know, like, you know, mass market titles that would work. And they settled on Halo. <laughs> Just thinking about maybe why it didn't work out between Bungie and Apple. You know, Apple's code names around this time were like Sonata and Taligent, and they got monkey nuts. <laughs> and apparently, uh, all that work to come up with a, a mass market appropriate name came just days before the keynote. So they had they had to get something to Apple that was well. And you know, I mean, it was a Steve Jobs keynote, and you know how rehearsed those things are and how much they hammer home even to the third parties that are going to show on stage like this has to be locked down days before like you know there were phone calls going what is this called like they already had the video demo video all queued up but they just needed that name (laughs) the other thing about this demonstration at uh at macworld though is that i think It's a little bit shocking in hindsight in two respects. First of all, the whole Mac as a gaming platform thing, right? I mean, (laughs) but take that as read. But the other thing is that it's Halo gameplay footage and, you know, it's a shooter. It's it's violent. Um, And Steve Jobs was like, yeah, this game looks awesome. Whereas I feel like today we have this very much like, oh, like, could you even put like a shooter on the app store that seems like Apple might think that's not very family friendly. And as we're recording this in early 2019, Apple's working on a video service, presumably. And we're like, Ooh, don't know if they're going to have any guns or violence in any of the TV shows that they're spending a billion dollars on creating. And it's like, well, this was clearly a violent video game that they were all behind in 1999. So Something has changed. I think to your point, the the closest Apple has come in recent years to allowing that kind of content on stage was the Infinity Blade series. R.I.P. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which they're like, look at how good these graphics are on a portable phone device. Uh, but the worst that the the combat ever got was, you know, like slow labored turn based sword fighting <laughs> and no blood. Maybe some sparks fly. Uh, yeah, kind kind of different. And yeah. Infinity Blade did not last the same way that uh, some of these other franchises did. Did not get the, uh, oh, hey, port it and do whatever you want with it treatment that Bungie had. Because just a few months ago, as we record this, the whole series that, like you said, was flagship demo, flagship third-party demo for Apple to show off metal and even before that, the hardware capabilities, it's just gone. Pulled by the developer, never to be seen again. But getting back to Halo, uh, it had this incredible demo that, uh, even though it was at a Macworld keynote, you know, reverberated through the entire game industry. People were like, look at this game that is coming to the Mac. Look at how good it looks. Uh, it's by this company with an incredible pedigree. Uh, like, and, you know, like mainstream publications like IGN were crowning it as an achievement. Well, what happened? <laughs> so things did not go as previewed at Macworld 1999, because in June of 2000 came the bad news for Mac lovers, which was that Bungie was being acquired by Microsoft. 
And of course, this was right around the time that Microsoft uh, was developing the Xbox console gaming platform. And they needed some awesome IP to really lift their console and make it a huge player against Nintendo and Sony, who were already entrenched in the market. And this was exactly what they needed. So they wholesale acquired Bungie. Uh, There were these other franchises that were still around. So Myth was transferred to Take-Two, and they did that uh, third iteration in the in the series um and there was another game in development that i'll get to in just a minute which is called oni which also had there was some hectic movement around uh finishing and releasing it as the company that was creating it was being acquired so just to wrap up on halo which we won't talk about a whole lot because it's really a successful xbox title. It was released as a launch title for the Xbox in November of 2001, so uh, a couple years after it was first demoed to the world. Kind of a standard timeline for video game development at that point. Um, Actually, you know, really well done considering um, all of the corporate movement that had to go on. Then in terms of some major players at Bungie, Uh, Alex Seropian left in 2002, so shortly after the acquisition, he was out uh, and has since, I think, founded another game studio doing his own thing. Uh, Jason Jones, by the way, is still at Bungie to this very day, so he's he's been there for 20-some years. Long time, but he's been there for the entire history of the company. As for Halo, promised, we were promised a Mac version of Halo. (laughs) There was a Windows version of Halo, and there was ultimately, a macOS X port of Halo that was released in December 2003 to very poor reviews, as I recall. Yeah, it. Um, I think a key word that you just said there is port, uh, because I think they must have taken whatever development progress happened between 1999 and the Xbox release in 2001, and then backported it to Mac code, and at this time, macOS X code, the, the Unix-based instead of uh, classic macOS, And it was one of those things that was released by, I want to say like Mac Play or one of those shops that basically just took IP from Windows uh, successful games and, you know, hastily ported them over to the Mac. So like it didn't ever feel like it was a Mac first app. And again, uh, it basically had the same graphics that were demoed in 1999, but released at the end of 2003. So stuff was already being released for the Mac. Uh, that was, you know, considered first for the Mac, that was looking much better. But I'll tell you what, I paid whatever, like $50, and I did get Halo for Mac OS X the day it came out. I fulfilled that little promise to myself. So maybe let's not uh, end on a downer for Bungie's history with the Mac, because there was one more game in development at the time parallel with Halo, and this was Oni. Oni was yet another type of game, uh, although you can see some of the links to their previous games and also maybe even to the Halo franchise if you look at it sort of from the, the engine perspective, because Oni was an action, combat, and third-person shooter game, which was relatively rare at the time. Uh, we, we mentioned the kind of corners that you paper over in creating an early first-person shooter, like animating the protagonist. Well, 
you have to do that now in a third-person shooter game. You have to model them in full 3D from all angles. They have to run and jump and crouch and walk realistically. And this is what they pulled off in Oni. This was a game that did get delayed and pushed around for a while. It was originally scheduled for a 1999 release. Uh, and then things got a little bit hectic with the sale. You know, they were already behind on releasing the game that was supposed to be a simultaneous Mac and Windows release. And then they find out that uh, the whole company has been bought. This was actually being developed by a studio that was informally called Bungie West. So they were in San Jose, and I think most of the rest of the company was in Chicago. And then everybody was going to move together to Redmond, to Washington, as part of the Microsoft acquisition. And they're like, well, we're we're 98% done with this game. We're not just going to throw it away because we got acquired. They're like, okay, but you, like the lease is running out on your office and you're expected to show up in Washington on a certain day. So they really rushed the end of it. They did have to cut some things. It was supposed to have a multiplayer mode that had been shown in demos and I think would have been very cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they dropped that as a result. And it was eventually released in 2001 for, interestingly, the classic Mac OS, Windows, and the PS2. So there was a console release, but not an Xbox release of Oni. So as for the game itself, it is another post-apocalyptic kind of setting set in 2032. So I guess just 13 years from now. Oh no, things are going to change. The protagonist is called Kanoko and is highly inspired by Ghost in the Shell and Akira. There's like a motorbike and she's supposed to be sort of a cyborg warrior. Um, and the first that I remember of this game was the promotional images that came out for it that were in very much an anime-inspired style. And the box art had her with her arms crossed with TCTF written on her armor across her chest, uh, which is the organization that she worked for in-game, uh, and these two big guns, which is ironic, because in the game, one of the key features of the gameplay is that you can only carry one gun at a time. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the box lied to you. <laughs> um, and this was part of what I found to be rather difficult gameplay. Perhaps difficult, but rewarding after a steep learning curve, which I did not get over. I've actually been playing the game recently uh, and may continue to do so to try to sort of make my way through it and get up to, you know, get my skills up. But because the gameplay is so ambitious, there's a lot to do. So you're navigating with a character in a fully 3D world, and there's both hand-to-hand -hand combat and gunplay. And you have to draw or holster your weapon. You have to um, you have to evade enemies and run into them and perform attacks. And the hand-to-hand -hand combat is extremely advanced. In fact, it reminds me a lot of traditional fighting games, where uh, if you've ever looked into playing a fighting game versus being good at a fighting game, they are two completely different things. <laughs> where there's this incredibly complex combo system that underlies everything. And you can punch and kick and get some stuff done, but unless you're 
reeling off the combos that require a lot of memorization and a lot of precision timing, you're not really doing well. Oni has all of this. And unlike a traditional fighter where you're basically on rails, you know, in a 2D environment, a fully 3D environment, um, frequently you will want to move towards someone to perform a move and you'll go past them. A lot of my kills in the game, if you take the time to turn around, turn the camera around to see them again, you've wasted too much time and they will have punched you in the head. (laughs) And so a lot of my kills involve just, like, hitting the back button and also the punch and kick buttons, and you will, like, reverse elbow somebody that you can't even see, and they go, ugh, and you're like, oh, I got him. (laughs) But yeah, a pretty challenging game. There's not much ammo or health uh, that the game offers to you, not a lot of power-ups, and the guns are a little bit confusing. The interface, oh my gosh, so... The interface is a little bit, it's supposed to be very futuristic, but it's a little bit inscrutable. So there are these two dials, dial-type interfaces, that are in either bottom corner of the screen, and they communicate an an immense amount of information with no text labels. So it's what type of gun you have, how much ammo you have, how many reloads you have, what direction you're supposed to go. Are you supposed to go up or down? Do you have health? Are you turbo boosted? Do you have invisibility? Do you have uh, health boosts? Do you have this? Do you have that? Like All this information in these two little circles with all these little layers in them. It's a fine interface, Once, but again, steep learning curve. One of the things that's funny, though, about playing this game now is how that interface appears. So... Um, just a quick history on how you can play this game now. Uh, like I said, it was Bungie's last release on classic Mac, but it did get ported again by a third party to OS 10. This is the fascinating part for any Mac fan. The people who did the original port of Oni to Mac OS 10 for PowerPC were the Omni group. Yes. Omni focus, Omni group. That's so cool. <laughs> the ones who make your task manager, also did like a punch em up shoot em up game port um and then another company took that and uh made it work on intel it's 32 bit though so if you haven't played oni and you want to play it now do it now while 32 bit apps are still supported because otherwise you're going to have to wait for yet another third party company to make it 64 bit compliant and that might not work cuz i think it's heavily open gl intensive and that's all going away yeah anyway these ports work great on modern mac i saw some footage from when the game was released the animation is choppy so on a modern mac you can run it at retina resolution high frame rate the textures and polygon counts you know are they're they're the originals but it looks it looks good for what the content that it's working with But those information displays are 2D images, and none of the 2D images scale. So if you run this at 4K resolution on an iMac, the little 200 by 200 pixel uh, info chart that is supposed to show you 12 things is going to be a half-inch square in the bottom of your screen (laughs) and completely unusable. So I was playing recently, and I put it at like 720p or... um, non-retina native resolution and they were still small but totally usable so keep that in mind if you play oni 
Um, another thing of the 2D assets in this game are the way that the story is revealed to you. A lot of interacting with computer terminals again. Yeah. Um, and all of that interface is a sort of a windowed interface. And I recognized as I was playing, oh, this also doesn't scale because it's very much like centered in the screen. And the text can be quite small if you're playing at a very high resolution. Um, but same kind of thing. You've got, uh, you've got this criminal syndicate. You've got this world government that you work for. Um, and you're trying to figure out what the syndicate is doing and take them down. And all of this is revealed to you through these computer terminal scenes, as well as some cutscenes, which I found hilarious. I, there's voice acting which is ranges from okay to good. (laughs) And I wonder if this is one of the things that got compromised in the quick release was that there are these cutscenes, very reminiscent of, of live rendered cutscenes at the time where you've got two 3d models and there's sort of some camera movement and they make some basic gestures. But at the same time, as you see the two characters on screen or sometimes one character on screen, a little, anime-style avatar will also appear on screen as if to say, like, just so you know, this character is talking. You're like, yes, I can see them. Well, their mouth isn't moving because we didn't have the ability to do it. Well, yes, but the 2D avatar's mouth isn't moving either. (laughs) So it's like this belt and suspenders kind of thing in the cutscenes, which is really funny. (laughs) Uh, Ed, is this your first playthrough the story? I think that I played the demo version of Oni when it was brand new. Again, like a Mac Addict CD or something. Put the first level on there as a free trial, and you can learn how the combat works, which is complex, as I said. Whole bunch of stuff for your left hand to do in this game. And then they, and then they overloaded the mouse button as both shoot and punch. So you shoot when you mean to punch, and like it's problems. Uh, but this is my first attempt at a full playthrough. I got through the first three missions, um, which it's challenging. It is. I mean, one of the things is because of the type of gameplay that it has, I want there to be more of like a stealth mechanic because you are often facing enemies with guns, but you have extremely limited ammo. And as soon as an enemy with a gun sees you and they have line of sight to you, there's no dodging it. Like, you might be able to, like, just rush them and take them out with hand-to-hand combat or disarm them, but it costs, like, half your health. I don't know. Maybe I have to put it on easy mode if I want to get through the whole story. Well, uh, it's funny you say that. Around the time of its original release, I uh, bought it and played it. um, And I did. I definitely played it through it on easy mode because, like I've said before, I'm terrible at video games. Um, And the reason I was willing to fork over real money and stick with the game. Uh, Well, A, is because it it had the Bungie pedigree. But B, a lot of the reviews pointed out that, like, there's this crazy thing they do where the choices you make in the game uh, affect the gameplay later. Nope, it's linear. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if I want to spoil it. There is one choice you make later in the game, very late in the game, uh, that affects the final boss battle. And that's it. (laughs) And and it's like a very one to one thing too. It's not like it if it like has shades of of how the boss battle goes for you. It's it's like either one thing happens during the boss battle or it doesn't because of one choice you make in the penultimate level, and that's it. I, I'm trying not to spoil it by talking around it. But another thing is in um one of these 
modern ports. I don't know if it's the one that's for Intel or if it's the one that Omni made. Uh, there's a Mac OS 10 native window for setting your controls and setting some of the graphic fidelity options. <laughs> and, and one of the checkboxes in this window is basically like, make the decision or don't make the decision if you want to like apply this to a saved game that's after the fact. Oh, I have not seen that in the version that I have. Okay, good. <laughs> because again, like maybe I was putting too much into these reviews I was reading, but they were making it seem like this has never been done before, that the the actions you take have consequences later. Like there was this huge tree of things that you could explore. Exactly. It's not a tree. It's one decision with a, like a binary outcome later. So I guess you have that to look forward to. <laughs> okay, yeah. I might have to fix the difficulty. <laughs> For all this, though, especially maybe just in terms of what people were expecting from the industry in general, maybe because of Bungie's history, Oni was not a huge commercial success, despite being rather innovative. Um, one of the things that was criticized was, in fact, the story, that it was just a weak background to otherwise excellent gameplay, but that mostly it was knock down the goons, find the next terminal, which opens a door. I mean, one way that they get a lot of mileage out of the 3D model environments that they had, is, in, at least in the first few chapters, is all the doors start locked. It's like you have to go from room one to room two to unlock room three. And then you have to go back to room one to unlock room four. And then you have to go back to room two to unlock room five. So there's a lot of running around. And of course, enemies come out over that time. But uh, it wasn't particularly compelling on the story front in certain points for me either. One of the other reasons that it might not have been successful on the Mac as well is because it had relatively high system requirements, especially considering that they were planning to release it in 1999. It would not have run on much of anything. But at the time, it was released in 2001 and still required a 300 megahertz CPU, which was only a handful of the G3s and some of the G4s, required 96 megs of RAM, which on any Mac at that time was an upgrade from a base configuration and required certain OpenGL-compatible graphics cards. Uh, the version that I have, that's the port that's distributed, still has the original README, which includes some like very technical bugs and known issues. <laughs> uh, and one of them is just, if you have a beige Power Mac G3 or a Rev-A iMac, not going to run unless you update your video card. So that was hardware that was, I guess at that point, coming up on four years old, but it was an absolute no-go, will not launch, not like performance issues or frame rate or anything, just unsupported. So that was kind of indicative of, I think, you know, the end of Mac support for Bungie. Uh, although at least we have these, these modern ports that continue on um, another thing that almost continued on for Oni was that there was a sequel allegedly in the works. Uh, I think that as part of, we mentioned that some of the IP got moved around as part of the acquisition 
of Bungie by Microsoft. They were really, I mean, they were really buying Halo Inc. <laughs> at that point. They didn't particularly care about the other games that were in development. Uh, they would take revenue from them if there was any to be had, sure. But uh, the Oni IP did get put off to take two, and they started working on a sequel that was allegedly called Oni 2 Death and Taxes, which does not make sense as a title. I'm willing to say that that's code name. Yeah. It's better than Monkey Nuts. <laughs> there are some screenshots and footage. There's a YouTube channel that does like lost video game footage. I found some of this on that we'll link to in the show notes. It, it looked pretty disappointing. I mean, it looked ambitious. They were going for a much more open world, more 3D elements, more enemies, but perhaps too ambitious and didn't get very far in development before it was eventually canned. And one of the things that I found disappointing about it is that some of the 2D graphics in-game that were you know, the hallmarks of the original Oni, the very strong anime style, looks like they were redrawn and it looks like we saw Tomb Raider once, and you know Kanoko's face has changed entirely. Not in the 3D assets, because they're borrowing those from the previous game, but uh, in the story and things that are going on around it. Uh, it definitely lacked some inspiration and was way behind and was eventually just canceled. So like Ed said, that was pretty much the end of Bungie putting out Mac software, even if it wasn't even uh, like Mac first or Mac only. Uh, but Bungie as a company exists to this day. So we'll wrap up our episode with uh, a, like, where is Bungie now? And I think this was part of what got us interested in. We, we knew that we had to cover Bungie on the show at some point, but we saw some news about them recently that, uh, well, we'll get to exactly what their corporate news is. But I went, wait, they aren't still owned by Microsoft. I assumed that that was a forever thing, but it turned out not to be so. So during their tenure... As a, a subsidiary of Microsoft, Bungie, of course, made the original Halo and uh, Halo 2 and Halo 3. Those were released in 2004 and 2007. And then uh, in October of 2007, Bungie spun back off as its own company, this time Bungie LLC. The Halo IP, of course, stayed with Microsoft because there have been like a dozen Halo games and actually operating as uh, Bungie LLC, they created two of those games for Microsoft and the Xbox, which is Halo 3 ODST, which was a like standalone prequel to Halo 3, and Halo Reach, which was a prequel to Halo 1, the whole franchise. And again, this is like Marathon Infinity is uh, is like reimagining Marathon. Myth 3 is a completely different story. Uh, so they're back to their old ways uh, as their own independent company. And then in April of 2010, they entered into a 10-year distribution deal with Activision Blizzard where they would retain the rights to any IP that they develop, even if Activision Blizzard helped uh, release and distribute it. And that was the conclusion of perhaps a very slow burn because I think Activision was one of the companies that was courting Bungie for an acquisition in the late 90s. Before Microsoft got to them instead. Since the success of Halo, 
uh, Bungie's current franchise, which they are operating as their own thing, is the Destiny franchise. For more on Destiny, highly suggest listening to the Accidental Tech Podcast, <laughs> where periodically John Syracuse completely confuses his co-hosts with words that are not English, but are Destiny-ese. Um, it is very much in the vein of Halo. In fact, because I do not have a console that will run Destiny, I thought for the like first year of its existence that it was a Halo game. Like it was in the Halo universe and part of the Halo IP. It's not. It's just that all of your scientific mecha marine characters that are the characters in Destiny look a lot like the ones that were developed as part of Halo. But they are in their own science fiction, mythical, magical, galactic universe. I do not speak Destiny. <laughs> but it is effectively a first-person shooter-type game with also RPG elements and uh, the things that they avoided in myth, lots of resource gathering and crafting and weapons and strange terminology. And I think Destiny is multiplayer only. There is no story component. That's right. It's online multiplayer only and cross-platform multiplayer because it was first released as an Xbox title, but then I believe came out for PlayStation as well. Um, And Destiny 2, the sequel, was released in 2017 and is also a Xbox and PlayStation title. Sorry, Mac users. Sorry, Apple and Nintendo fans. You are never going to be able to play Destiny on their platforms. That's just the way it is. But getting back to the very recent news that uh, spurred us to, to record our Bungie episode now, in January of this year, 2019, the supposed 10-year deal with Activision Blizzard was terminated two years early. And because of the original terms in the agreement, Bungie is retaining all of this Destiny intellectual property. So they will continue to uh, augment the Destiny and Destiny 2 universe. I don't know if there's a Destiny 3 in the works, but uh, they have the freedom to keep working on that franchise. And really just, it continues the story of Bungie where they create things and then they leave them behind and move on to a new business venture and create something new and innovative and leave it behind and move on to a new business venture. Uh, and they just, uh, they just keep going. It would be interesting in one respect to see what a newly liberated Bungie decides to do, not only with the Destiny franchise, which if any of their other franchises are an indication are going to get, you know, three good games out of it, and then they're going to create something new and interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what they do as they're not tied to an Activision distribution deal, which, of course, locked them closely to console gaming. And we know that the Mac is not a target of game development, uh, and we're not expecting awesome Mac-exclusive titles to be unveiled at WWDC. (laughs) But it would be interesting if Bungie, working totally independently now, maybe did something intriguing for iOS with all of the hardware that's available there. I mean, I don't think that there's any news or even even rumors to that effect, but it's 
as Bungie has moved from project to project, they've also moved from platform to platform, and it would be would be uh, it would be nice. It would be a little bit of a bit of a reunion if they came back to Apple that way. But uh, unlike Halo for Mac, I'm not holding my breath. So as always, if there's a specific piece of Bungie lore, Bungie history, or an experience that you enjoyed, uh, please feel free to share that with us. For example. Um, I, I think neither of us really know anything about Destiny, but uh, one thing I know about the connection or a connection between Marathon and Halo is that the Marathon application icon or logo shows up all over the place in Halo. And so if there's anything like that, that you might be able to tie Destiny to some of these earlier Bungie franchises um, that doesn't require either of us needing to know all the different terms. <laughs> yeah, don't tell us about your magic crystal shards. <laughs> yeah, Definitely send that our way. As always, we have a contact form on our website, simplebeep.com, or we are on Twitter at simple underscore beep. You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.